0: Thank you for how you serve. It's good to see you. Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James 4, while you're turning there, I wanted to give you a heads up of what's coming in the pulpit. Um, we're taking a break from Matthew, uh, we have been in it for two years, and so we're going to take a little break. Uh, this February, we'll have a few one-off pastoral sermons, a couple guest preachers in, and then in March, we will begin a study through our new statement of faith, a series we're calling We Believe, and we'll hit doctrinal topics like the doctrines of Scripture and God's triune nature, the sovereignty of God. Uh, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the help and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and many more. And that study is going to take us on up into the beginning of July, when we will jump back into Matthew, and we will be in Matthew for the rest of your life, probably. <laughs> the pace we're going, it seems like. No, but we will be there the rest of the year until Christmas, uh, when we'll step into to our annual Advent series. So that's what's coming. Today, we are in the book of James, chapter 4, looking at a very practical, very helpful passage. One of my Uh, go-to passages. Our sermon title today is Cravings and Conflict. Cravings and Conflict. I don't know if any of you had the experience that I had this year of getting a family portrait uh, taken. Uh, We haven't done one in a long time, so we did one of those family portraits. I love uh, seeing people's family portraits uh, because we had a a great experience this time around, Um, but I like family portraits because they're, it's like everything looks perfect. Everybody's smiling. They have like these matching clothes. You know, there's this filter on the picture. So, you know, you get the sun glare and it's just, it's like joy radiates from the picture. But we all know what that was really like, right? Like the kids are supposed to be standing straight and smiling and they're like, And mom and dad are like, stand up straight. Stand up. Stand. If I have to tell you one more time, now smile. <laughs> and so th- this is the secret to it. This is how it works. You pay someone to take like a 1,000 photos over an hour because surely somewhere in a 1,000 pictures, the odds are you're going to get one good one. And then you just put that everywhere. You just paste it all over social media and you use it for your Christmas cards and and everything. One thing we all share in common is we are all, none of us are strangers to conflict, to relational strife. Regardless of your family structure, whether you are married with no kids or married with kids at home or married and empty nesters, whether you're single or single again or is part of an extended family, or if this is your family, you experience conflict, and you probably experience it pretty regularly. And then what complicates it even more is that we all have different styles of conflict that we bring into our fights. Uh, We fight differently. Uh, All of us fight dirty, none of us fight clean, but we all fight differently, right? And so Uh, I have a list here of some of the more popular styles of fighting that I have witnessed in my personal and pastoral life. Uh, So one is some of you out there are what I call peace fakers, not peacemakers, peace fakers, as in uh, you just want everyone to get along. And so you avoid conflict and you downplay things and you don't deal with the hard stuff because you just want everybody to be happy. Peace Others of you are sulkers, right? And so someone upsets you, you withdraw into yourself, you go around pouting, you throw yourself a pity party, waiting for that person who offended you to notice that you are so upset, and so hurt, they were so evil and so wrong in what they did, and they need to come and make it right. True confession, I'm a bit of a sulker myself, at home, when I get upset, I can turn my house into one of those um, like escape room games, you know, where everyone has to figure out why I'm upset, and I'm not going to give them any clues. No. It's true. <laughs> then there's the stuffers, the stuffers. That's the person who just constantly stuffs anger and conflict down. Uh, you're asking them, you know, "Are you okay?" and they're always saying, "Yeah, fine. I'm fine." If you're a stuffer, I just want you to know, we actually can see that little thought bubble above your head where you're saying all the bad things. We can see that, just so you know. Others of you are litigators, which means you're that strange animal that likes to argue and prove that you are not wrong. And this is what I have learned about litigators over the years. It's not that you cannot admit you're wrong, it's just that in your mind, you never are. And I just want you to know, it's such a blessing to be around you. (laughs) Finally, we have the screamers. The screamers. This is the person who, when they get upset, they go from zero to sixty in like three point five seconds. They're just always full volume. You know, something happens and they're like, "What!" Just goes way up real fast. And this is something else I've noticed, by the way, just for your, um, really, it's for your amusement. So I'll give it to you. So here's what it is: I have noticed that people who come from screaming families tend to marry people who do not come from screaming families. Like opposites attract. And so what happens in their marriage is like these first few arguments that they have, uh, the screamer just cannot figure out why the other person is not engaged in this conversation. And the non-screamer is trying to figure out how they get the demon out of their spouse. (laughs) We all experience conflict. And until we are finally delivered from the presence of sin, we are going to experience more conflict. We laugh at some of this getting into it. We laugh because we all know it. But we also know that we all have conflict in our past. Some of us are engaged in conflict right now. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the forecast for all of us is there is conflict in your future. Probably later today. So we're turning to James chapter 4 this morning for something of a clinic on conflict. Dr. James is going to help us to get under the conflict and into our hearts And to find how it is we are to think rightly and resolve biblically conflict in our lives. Uh, Just really, honestly, I don't think there is a week that goes by that I do not use this passage uh, to help me avoid conflict or to help me resolve conflict. Uh, And there's certainly not a week that goes by that I don't use it also in pastoral ministry. And so I have found this passage to be one of the most helpful passages uh, in Scripture. So, James chapter 4, we're looking at verses 1 through 10. This is what Holy Scripture says. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder... You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would bless the preaching and the believing of your word today. Lord, I pray that you would use this passage to help us strive for peace with each other and in our families. And God, I pray that you would use this passage as well uh, to where there is relational conflict that has lasted for years even, definitely for this season. I pray, Lord, that you would use this passage to break open the dam that the stagnant water may flow and new living water flow through. God, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, in just a few short verses here, James helps us to see, Dr. James in this kind of clinic on conflict, helps us to see the source of conflict the solution to conflict, and how we are to go about settling conflict. So those are our three points. We're jumping directly into them. Point number one, the source of conflict. James opens this passage like I might open a a counseling session. Uh, He asks us, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This is a good question. What is it that causes your fight? The last one you were in, what was the cause of that fight? If I were to ask you the cause of it, you might be tempted to point your finger at someone who's sitting next to you this morning and say, He was, or she was. You might be pointing your finger at your spouse or your child or your parent. You might be thinking about that demanding boss that you have or that difficult friend. Or maybe you're thinking about your circumstances and how hard they were the day that you had had or what had happened to you or how you have been suffering and so who wouldn't respond like how you did. But what James does next is he helps us to go under the surface of our conflict. Like a surgeon, he kind of opens us up and says, well, let's, let's look under the hood of your heart. Look, look the, down into your conflict and see what's there. James answers his own question saying, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, And cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. James is showing us here that the cause of our quarrels, the cause of the actual heat in our relationships and the fights that we get into, the cause of them is always us, never them. No matter what they did, no matter how wrong they were, or however they offend you, or whatever it was, your circumstances. The heat in it is your own. It comes from your desires. It's always your passions, your desires, your covenant. It's what we want that causes our wars. There is something that you want, something that you think you are entitled to. And that person is keeping you from it. And so you despise them in that moment. To give an example from my own life of what this looks like, imagine a night um, that this is like, this is not an imaginary night. This is, you know, from real life. Um, I come home from work and I am looking forward to a night of rest and relaxation. Looking forward to sitting by our warm fire, reading a good book to my family, and having a wonderful night, but I walk in the door, and what do my wandering eyes behold? Chaos. Everywhere. It's just crazy. Now, it's not really, right? It's not really that bad. But against what I was expecting, what I was wanting, it feels like chaos. Like I'm ready to eat dinner, but there's art supplies all over the table. With no one using them, they're just out. And where are my children? sitting reading books lounging neglecting chores that could be done in preparation for their father coming home and so I get angry but I sulk I'm a sulker right so What do I do? I tend to just get quiet, I get serious, I say, okay, let's get this cleaned up, let's get this done. You can do it fine. Yeah, I'm doing fine, whatever. And I just want to get it done. But there is a there is a coldness emanating from me. And everybody feels it. What is the source of my coldness? It's not them. It's my desire. And I feel like they are depriving me from what I'm entitled to. And I am willing to go to war. James is teaching us here that underneath every conflict is a craving. Underneath every single conflict, is a craving. This is very easy to remember. Cravings underlie conflict. Every time, cravings underlie conflict. Why do you fight? Why do you quarrel and fight? It's not that complicated. It's not as complicated as you might think. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet something, you cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. Cravings, underlying conflict, unsatisfied desires, fuels our wars. And they can be desires for bad things, but usually they are desires for perfectly good things. Usually, the craving we have is for something that is perfectly good. It's it's not an unrighteous thing. The problem is we just desire it too much. right? So, theologian and pastor John Calvin once wrote one of his most helpful quotes, one of the most helpful quotes I have come across, I believe. He once wrote, The evil in our desires typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. That is so helpful. Listen, that is so helpful in almost every single fight you will ever get into in your life. So keep it up on the above for a minute so everybody can write it down. The evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it Too much. You might say, my husband just does not understand or appreciate all the work that I do for this family every single day. He comes home thinking about his needs and only his needs and is totally oblivious to mine. And that makes me furious. Or you might say, my spouse is the most sexually selfish person on the planet. She just does not think about what I need. Or you might say, I just wanted to get to playing some video games. Like I just wanted to play a video game after a long, hard day at work. I just wanted to land the plane and play a video game. And there is nothing wrong in and of itself with any of those things. There's nothing wrong with wanting your husband to appreciate all that you do. There's nothing wrong with wanting your wife to appreciate your desire for sex. There's nothing wrong, uh, as long as the game is good, for you to be playing a little bit of a video game. There's nothing wrong with any of these desires, and they ought to be talked through. They ought to be worked through. But the source of your anger, the source, the cause of your conflict is that your desire for it is too strong. You want a good thing, but you want it too much, and so you're willing to fight for it. James goes as far as to say you're willing to murder, metaphorically, right? Jesus, the anger in your heart is murdering your brother. Now, notice what James says next, the last half of verse 2. He says, You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Um, now, here, I don't think he's talking about us asking each other. I think he's starting to turn this vertical up to the Lord. He's saying, Now, where should you take your desires? Well, you should take them to God. You should make your desires known to the Lord. You should be praying about this. You should be asking the Lord to supply what, you're, what you feel like you need or you desire. But Many of us don't go to God. We have long-term issues between us and our spouse or with our kids, and we're not praying regularly over that issue. We just want them to change. Or maybe we do pray about it. Maybe we do go to the Lord and ask about it, but ultimately test our motives, and the Lord says, ultimately, you're just praying for this selfishly. You just want to use this for yourself. Which means your passions, your desires, are still ruling your heart. All right, so underneath every conflict is what? Cravings. Underneath every conflict is craving. Cravings underlie conflicts. But James then takes us deeper here, and he says, you need to understand this. Let me take you deeper still, because there's something underneath that craving." that you need to understand. There's something even deeper underneath that craving. If underneath every conflict is a craving, then James tells us that underneath that craving is something even more sinister at work. This is where verse 4 goes. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, James goes to this radical statement. He's calling genuine Christians here adulterous people. It's abrupt and it's harsh and it's meant to stun and to startle us. It's meant to shake us awake to the true condition of our soul in relation to God. He's saying if you have a desire in your heart that has so much control over you that you're willing to fight and to murder someone else made in my image, someone else that you have committed to loving, someone else you're supposed to be careful of. If that desire has that much of a hold on your heart, then you have a different God in your life. You have committed spiritual adultery spiritual adultery and I, I you know we need to get the diagnosis here every time we are in a fight with someone else it's not just cravings that are present we are committing adultery on the lord so james is telling us here this is a lot more serious than you thought. This is a lot more serious than you thought. Think about what happens in adultery. In adultery, a spouse looks to have certain desires satisfied in someone else that he should be finding in his spouse. Right? That's what adultery is. You're going to someone else looking to have your desires satisfied that you should be looking for in your spouse. So spiritual adultery is when you are looking to have certain desires satisfied that you ought to be looking for in God. I come home and the house is not exactly how I want it. My, work, my wife is working as hard as she possibly can. She's doing a great job. I have no idea what has interrupted her life or her day. You know, Maybe she's ministering to people. Maybe she's caring for people. I have no idea. I come in and it's just not quite exactly the way I want it to be. I get angry because I have a desire for happiness and rest and peace and ease. And it has become my God. Functionally, in that moment. And I'm willing to fight my family to try to get what I want. To get what I worship. To get what I love. And that's friendship with the world. That's letting the things of this world, happiness, pleasure, security, peace, and control from the things of this world become to you a greater lover than God is. So, if we're sitting under this passage this morning, we're not just like you know engaging this mentally, like okay, well this is interesting, I'll think about this. But if we are putting ourselves under this passage, then that means the Lord is saying when we are in a conflict with someone else, it's like a man finding out that his wife has been cheating on him. This passage is like the 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 Lord flinging open the door of our heart and he's catching us in bed with the selfish desires of this world. He's catching us wound up in bed, seeking something, and he's saying to us, you're supposed to find that in me. You're supposed to find that in me. What takes conflicts to a heated relationship-killing level is that this person, that person, is keeping you from getting what you want, what you believe you are entitled to. Underneath every conflict is a craving, an unmet desire. But instead of turning to God to meet that desire, instead of turning to Him with that craving and submitting it to His wise plan for your life, and instead of trusting Him to help you work for that desire with that person in ways that honor Him, You have instead turned from God. You have committed adultery on God with that desire. You've let it rule your heart. Your desire is now your God. So if that's the case, every time we have a fight with our kids, with our parents, with our spouse, with a friend, with a roommate, with a work, how do we get out of all of that That brings us to point number two then the solution to conflict. The solution to conflict. The solution to conflict uh, is not first to wake up, repent, and turn back to God. The solution is not first for you to turn back to God and try to repent. That's there, it's all mixed up. But I want you to theologically understand there's a distinction. Something's in between that that you need to know about. And it's that God is jealous for you. It's that God is gracious already towards you. Verse 5 says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns? jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God flings open the door of our hearts in the midst of a conflict. He sees us in bed with the desires of our heart. We are cheating on God. We are committing spiritual adultery. And the Lord's feeling towards us is one of divine jealousy. But his jealousy is not like our jealousy. It's not fueled by selfishness and greed. God's jealousy is evidence of his holy love. It is zeal for his bride. God's divine jealousy is evidence of his passion for us. It is his devotion to us, even when we are wayward, even when we cheat on him. It is his eagerness to pursue us, to chase us down, to win us back. I mean, think about how many conflicts you have been in. Think how many times that means you have cheated on God. How many times have you spurned his love? How many times have you left him for lesser lovers and entangled yourself with those who will never satisfy? And yet God's perfect jealousy always burns hot for you. He never gives up on us. He always chases us down. He always wants us back. He never gives up. And that is amazing. That is amazing. We turn from him. We cheat on him. We sleep with other lovers. But how does God respond? How does God respond to our spiritual adultery? Verse 6. But he gives more. Grace. I mean, if you're under this passage this morning, you needed to hear that. He gives more grace. James immediately turns our attention from the jealousy of God to the fact that God is jealous to give us more grace. He has so much grace to give. And you might be tempted to think, but Jace, you don't know what sin I've committed. You don't know what I said. You don't know what I did to them. Or you might be tempted to say, Jace, you have no idea how long I have been angry at this person. You don't know how deep my bitterness goes. Or you, you may even say, you know, Jace, you don't know how long I've avoided God on this. You don't know, Jace. You can't imagine how angry I have been. The hurtful things that I have said. The way I've closed my heart. Jace, you have no idea. Which I'd say, you're right. But God does. And his word to you is, I give more grace. I give more grace. So we need to know this. Here it it is. If if, if there's one sentence you take away from today's message, this would be the one I think. There is always more grace in God than there is sin in us. That is always the case. There is always more grace in God than there is sin in us. You can never out-sin God's grace. You can never out-sin God's grace. And that's not an invitation for you to try to. Please don't. But I'm informing you that you can't do it. You can never out God's grace. He always has more grace to give. Alec Moiter, in his commentary, celebrates the comfort of this verse when he writes, what comfort there is in this verse. He says, of God, his resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity has no limit. He gives more grace. Yes, He does. He gives more grace every time. His resources are never at an end. Your patience may be exhausted. God's patience is never exhausted. Your initiative may have stopped a long, long time ago. God's initiative never ceases you may feel no longer generous towards somebody. God is totally generous towards you. God always has more grace to give. And this is good news to spiritual adulterers like you and me because this means in God, there is always forgiveness. In God, there is always hope. There is always help. There is always new beginnings. Listen, when God flings open the door of our heart and finds us cheating on him with a selfish desire when he finds us in bed, entangled with a craving for pleasure or control or security or peace, what is God's disposition towards us? It's not to recoil. It's not to shut the door. It's not to shut us out. It's not to give up on us, but it's to keep on giving. But apparently they just need more grace. So I've got some. Give, give, give. God never stops giving, and God never gives up on us. That's what this verse tells us. He always gives us more grace, and here's why. This is what you need to understand about why this can happen. Here's why. Here's why God is always poised to give us more grace. It's because the conflict he would have with us over our spiritual adultery The just anger and the righteous indignation he ought to to harbor against us has already been resolved at the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen, when we are in conflict with others, what we need to understand is the conflict underneath the conflict is we should be in conflict with God because we're cheating on him and he ought to let us have it. We've cheated on him. We've abandoned him. We've looked to another lover to satisfy us. So, the conflict underneath our conflict should be a conflict with God. He should war against us. But He doesn't because there's no more fight left. It's all been spent on Jesus Christ in our place, it's all been exhausted on Jesus so that we are saved. And that is the gospel, that is the good news. We have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, making peace by the blood of His cross." Colossians 1:20. "On the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied for every one of our sins. Each of them was laid on Jesus. He paid it all. He bore the wrath. He took the blame. This is our salvation, so that when we cheat on God, the conflict we ought to have with Him is already resolved. It's already taken care of. It's already been forgiven. It has all been taken care of so that all that's left is God's good disposition toward you. All that's left is grace and generosity and love and forgiveness and help and new starts. This is the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. And friends, this is the true solution, the heart of the solution to all our conflict. It all goes back to God sending his son to resolve our conflict with him so that he can give us more grace. And then with that grace comes forgiveness and a way back to him and help to resolve our conflict with one another and grace to satisfy our desires. All of it begins in the grace of God to us. And so this brings us then to point number three. Point number three, because we've got skin in the game. We, we, So this is what God does for us, but what do we need to do to work out our conflict? What we need to do, what's our responsibility? And so point number three, the settling of conflict. If the solution to our conflict is ultimately the grace of God, the way that gets worked out in our lives, first in our relationship with God, then our relationship with one another, the way conflict is settled then is through humility on our part. It's through humility. Look again at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The point here is God is always poised to give more grace, God's disposition is to always be giving more grace. He is, as we were saying earlier, a generous king. He's always ready to give. However, it's only the humble that will receive it. It's only the humble that will receive it. The proud reject it, the humble receive it. Why is that? Why? Don't just think, well, this is a formula. This is how it works. This is God's math. This is, what he, this is how it works in his economy. No, it's, there's a reason here. The reason is the humble will admit that they're adulterers. The humble will admit their own guilt. The humble admit that they need more grace to transform them, to forgive them. And that's who receive the grace of God. And so the exhortations from there in verses 7 through 10 are not just a cluster of random commands, but they're actually showing us what humility looks like, what humility fleshed out is going to look like. So let's look at this. There's a number of them here. I think I have six here of of how humility is fleshed out then in the rest of this passage. First, in verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Humility is a submission, of our desire to God's desire. It is a submission of our will to His will, to His wise and perfect will. It's a submission of our plans for our life to His good and perfect plan for our life. Now, I talked about this in the counseling seminar there recently. Um, you know, Sin is a desire, and James 1 talks about this. You know, We sin when we are enticed by our own desires, and then those desires, when they give birth, when they conceive, conceive sin, and sin, when it's full-grown brings forth death, right? So sin comes from desire. We've already seen conflict is this desire at war within us. And so let's just say you're in the scenario, right, where you are in a conflict with someone in your family or someone close to you. You're in a conflict. God in his grace starts to bring some conviction. You know this is not right. I want you to imagine this very specific point when you know that, but you don't feel that. You know what I'm talking about? I know I'm wrong, I know I'm angry and I shouldn't be. I know what I said was not good, but I still feel angry. I still feel justified. I still feel like they're the big problem here. But I know part of something's not right. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, like, Like that point where you're just, you know it, but you don't know it. And that's because you know it in your head, But there's still a desire in your heart. And desires are strong. That's hard to overcome. And so what humility looks like is submission. I feel one way because I want something. But I humble myself and say it's wrong. I'm going against my feelings. I'm going against my desires right now. And I'm walking by faith. I'm submitting myself to God. That's the beginning of humility, to submitting of your desires to the Lord. Believing, because of his grace, that he is good and right and wants to give you grace. That's the beginning of humility. And then second, we find um, this good news. Second, we find in this verse, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So by submitting to God, by humbling ourselves to God, we begin the resisting of Satan so here it is. We are, we are resisting his temptation to selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. We are resisting what James calls earlier in, the past, or in this book, a uh, wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And the promise is, when we submit to God, the devil will flee from us. So I kind of picture this here as like um, the Wicked Witch of the West and from The Wizard of Oz. Okay, so you remember the Wicked Witch? Like, she's a real threat. She's got power. She's evil. She's got these little flying monkeys, which are spooky little guys, kind of like Satan's demons. So, you see the analogy I'm doing here. So, real threat, real dangerous, serious thing. But when she comes into Glinda's domain, you remember what Glinda says to her? You have no power here. You have no power here. Be gone. And I kinda picture that here with Satan. When we are submitted to God, when we bring ourselves back under the rule and reign of God into his dominion, as it were, Satan has no power here. Satan has no power, he has to flee like the defeated foe that he is. So you're in a fight, you're in a conflict. You didn't even know Satan was there in you. You thought he might be there in them, but not in you. You were not discerning his influence on your life, the sway of his wisdom at work upon you. But when you took up friendship with the world, you drew near to the God of this world. And no matter how many times you pray against him in Jesus' name, only when you humble yourself and submit yourself to God, will he flee from you. But if you submit, that is resisting the devil, and he will flee from you, Number three, verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Isn't that one of the most wonderful verses? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What you mean like when I'm this nasty, spiritual, adulterous person and I come in with all my gri- my guilt and my yuck from what I just did with those desires and what I just said to them again and again. You mean if I draw near to God like that, he'll still draw near to me? Yes He will. Yes, He will. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. This is the grace of God for those who are humble. Number four, still in verse eight, clean your hands, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I think this indicates the examination that needs to begin to happen in our lives. We need to look at our hands and our heart. We need to look at our deeds and desires. What have we done wrong? What did we say? That was sinful? What did we desire that was disproportionate? We need to examine the hands and the hearts and confess what is wrong. Want to purify it. Which brings us to the fifth one, verse, number, or verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Once you've identified those things that need cleansed, what you do with them is you. You mourn for them. I think if James has been taking us under the surface of conflict to see our cravings at work and then even lower still to see Uh, that we have been committing spiritual adultery. And then he's shown us, but the grace of God has come to you there and he will give you more grace. All you need to do is humble yourself. And if you humble yourself and submit yourself to God, then he will draw near to you when you draw near to him. Like he's bringing us back up. And then it's cleanse your hands and and examine your heart. Okay, see what's wrong. And then I think it's here is when it starts to break the surface again. It comes back out and we confess our sins to God. We start to confess our sins to God and we confess to one another. We confess in wretched mourning. Which means we do not apologize with a qualification. Right? You know what that's like, right? I'm sorry I said that. But when you did... That's not wretched mourning. That's just playing the game. That's not apologizing. What you need to say is, I know I was angry and I said hurtful things. That was so wrong of me please forgive me i was being selfish please forgive me for what i said that hurt you and please forgive me for following my desires instead of following god i'm so sorry and then finally number six james concludes this passage with still another incentive to why we should humble ourselves here's still another way god gives more grace verse 10 Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Listen, humbling yourself—this is what this passage brings out. I think this verse: Humbling yourself does not guarantee that the person you're in conflict with is going to forgive you. Right? We don't do it for our own passions to be met, our own pleasure met. We're not apologizing for them. We're doing it because it's the right thing, and we want to glorify the Lord. And we're not apologizing to get what we want from them. Right? I don't say I'm sorry so that we can really talk about your problem and you'll change. Like this is actually, this verse right here is actually the test for true humility. This is the test for true humility. Will you go low? Will you mourn and be wretched over your sin? Will you humble yourself? And just wait on the Lord to exalt you whenever and however He wants. That's the test of true humility. Looking to the Lord. And then um, this is just my past. this is not scripture. James does not say this. This is up aside here. This is just my. Personal and pastoral experience has taught me that everything we just went over, once you get through that, and there's like some sweet reconciliation, or at least you've confessed, be ready to rinse and repeat. Because you're probably going to be tempted in that same conversation and need to go through all this again. Now the reality is, is you can do this really fast. You can be very fast to acknowledge what you did wrong, that there was this desire you craved, and it was wrong, and it was adultery, and you're sorry, and you need to apologize, and humble yourself. What we're really seeing here is a way we live in relationship with others. So in conclusion, let me give us three specific applications to take away. Three things to do with this text. First, know thyself. Know thyself. Going back to the different styles of conflict that we began with, which are you? Are you a peace faker? Are you a sulker? Are you a stuffer? Are you a litigator? Are you a screamer? Are you something else I didn't mention? Which style of conflict do you use, and which style do those closest to you use? Your spouse, your kids, your roommate. Second application. Invite your spouse, or if you're not married, a good friend, or maybe your parent, someone close to you, to evaluate how you do at resolving conflict in light of what this passage teaches us. Ask others to evaluate you. In families, I urge spouses to do this, but I would also urge parents to invite children to to evaluate them. How would your kids say you do? And kids, invite your parents to evaluate you. How good are you, or how well do you, resolve conflict in a biblical way like we've seen here? And then third and final application, third and final, examine if there is any unresolved conflict in your life. Is there any unresolved conflict in your life? If so, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The Lord wants to free you. And the Lord does not want you to stay in adultery, away from him. This is the grace of God to you. He's calling you back. So resolve in your heart and in your mind, to pursue reconciliation. In any of these questions, where do you need more grace? Where do you need more grace? The good news for each and every Christian is this. God gives more grace. And the best news for us is that through Christ, there is more grace in God than there is sin in us. God never stops giving, and he never gives up. On us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Uh, Lord, a passage like this goes into the, the dark places of our heart and the shut doors from behind which we have a lot of conflict that's unresolved. And these are dark rooms. These are dark crevices in our hearts. And your word comes in with life-giving light. And it illuminates and it helps us to see what's really there. And it helps us to see the way out. Lord, I pray that through this passage, your spirit will be at work in us, giving us faith, giving us humility, so that we can follow the light of your word. We can follow you out of the conflict that we are in and out of the conflict in the days ahead, uh, so that we can walk in your marvelous light and we can know fellowship with you. Lord, I pray for those who have been struggling with conflict either presently or in a season of their life right now, uh, or maybe even for many, many years. I had a picture in first service of there just, and I prayed, I think, earlier today in this service, of this, just this dam that the Lord is wanting to bust open. So all this stagnant water can flow out and courses of living water can flow through. Lord, I pray that you would help break the dams in your mercy today, Lord. I know it'll be messy and crazy at first and all that stagnant water just rushes all over and pours all over, uh, but I believe it's all a mercy that you can have streams of living water flowing through each of us, Lord, and through our relationships and our marriages and our families and with our kids. And so, Lord, pray, do this merciful, severe but merciful work. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to stand now, please.